I had a great time participating in a panel on go-to-market strategy for open source companies at KubeCon Startup Fest, hosted by Dave Zilberman at Norwest, Erica Brescia at Redpoint, and Jesse Robbins at HeavyBit. I represented the sales perspective alongside community whisperer Jono Bacon at Community Leadership Core and Wonderkin marketer Adam Frankel at Alchemist Accelerator and DevAngels. I'm republishing our discussion here. We covered topics such as, if you're a technical founder, how do you build your skills in selling? If you're an introvert, how do you become your company's chief evangelist? What is the value of founder-led selling and when does it make sense to hire an AE and a VP sales? How do you determine your pricing and packaging strategy early on? And many other questions. You can listen to the conversation or else read the lightly edited transcript. Enjoy. So I wanted to uh, first tee off something that Jesse said just about uh, the market in 2021, which was that it was an unhealthy aberration. And the reason it was an unhealthy aberration is because too much money was raised by companies that had not reached product market fit. They had not reached sales momentum. And so that causes a lot of downstream implications. And so for this panel, we really wanted to bring up some really some real industry experts to talk about that go-to-market perspective. You heard some really great perspective from Erica about what it takes to raise capital. And so after you've raised capital, then part of the go-to-market challenges really come to fruition. And so we wanted to have that kind of conversation. So I'll introduce the panelists, and I, and I warn you that these are my introductions. They humbly objected to my introductions, but I'll call it as I see it. Um, and I, I've, I think we have just an amazingly stellar group of panelists here from go-to-market perspective. So Jono is really the community whisperer, like one of the top minds in community building, developer relations, wrote a fantastic book called People Powered, runs an awesome accelerator called the Community Leadership Core. Um, incredibly acclaimed. Um, Allison is currently a solo GP at a fund called The New Normal, focused on AI and SaaS, but is on the board of DBT Labs, was the COO of Gainsight, one of the foremost companies in customer success, and just a, a, an amazing thought leader in on, on the revenue side of things. And Adam, not last, but uh, is uh, just an amazing marketer. We debated whether he's a Yoda or whether he's a wunderkind. You could make that determination, but was the first VP of marketing at three amazing developer-focused companies, Sourcegraph, Neo4j, and JFrog, um, and really honed their messaging, how to speak to developers, how to build that community. Thank you uh, to the panelists. So I wanted to first start and sort of pose a question to the panelists, kind of a chicken or the egg question, which is what comes first, community development, revenue, or marketing? And based on that, then we'll dive into it and we'll go deeper into each of the categories. But I'd love to hear from the three of you all. As a young company, you, you, know, you may have just raised some capital, you're thinking of raising capital, you have limited time, limited resources, limited capital, where do you invest that? My view is for an early stage company, uh, it, it kind of depends a little bit. If you've got an open source project, I think it changes the dynamic a bit, but it should be all about dialing your product or your project in. I think that you shouldn't be thinking about revenue yet. It should all be about building a small group of people, a small community. I like it to be under 100, which is providing the very best possible experience for those people to get product feedback, iterate and evolve on that. 
Um, and I think this is really beneficial because what happens is when you build that small community, it can be 100 people in Discord. When, when they provide recommendations and updates, they identify bugs and things like that, you incorporate them in the process, you demonstrate vulnerability, you say, look, we're going to do the best that we can to build this thing, but we can't do it alone. Then what happens is you build a collaborative environment, right? And I think marketing is a tool that can be helpful there, where you can use that as a mechanism to scale out information and updates to people, especially using email. Until you've got that product dialed in, I would not go beyond that. I was actually working with a member recently, I told you this last night in the plane, where they, uh, they wanted to built a ton of growth. Um, and then they told me that 60% of their of people who onboarded in their product, they lost them. And I was like, don't think about growth until you've got that dialed in. Otherwise, you're just going to be scaling out a bad experience. Yeah. And what about from you, from a perspective, to Jono's perspective about building the community, the messaging? So I want to completely disagree with Jono. Oh, yeah. I love content. There we go. Let's I go. Like, yes. Marketing. I used to say marketing starts day zero, but I changed my mind. Marketing starts day minus one. Because I, I used to think the first thing you should do when you decide to start a company is start marketing. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But then I changed my mind. You need to start marketing before you make the decision to start a company. Because if you start marketing and you can't attract an audience, that's a pretty important signal that maybe the problem you're solving is not a real problem for a lot of people. And when I say start marketing, right? I don't mean spend money, don't spend money, right? But go onto the social network formerly known as Twitter, right? And just start talking about the problem that you wanna solve. Talk about it every day. Where, you know, what is it? Where did it come from? What are people doing about it now? Where's it gonna go in the future, right? Attract an audience, attract followers, right? The, fo your, the followers you attract will become your community, but the first and hardest thing is to get your early followers. So start early, start today, when your startup is just an idea in your mind, right? You become an expert by having an idea and by publishing, so publish now. Okay. So, so I'd love to ask you a follow-up question to that. Adam, which is, yeah, I have the good pleasure of working with Adam on a couple of companies, and Adam has an amazing way of working with founders and helping them to craft their message and their story arc. And you have this great concept of a villain and a hero. I'd love for you to expand on that for those that have built a product but aren't marketing savants and maybe haven't figured out exactly how to put it into okay. a pithy liner. Yeah, this, this is a project I just did with Diagrid, and That's it was a great deal of fun. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take just like two minutes to explain this. I'm gonna tell you something that everyone in this room knows because you studied it in ninth grade English class, okay? You need a story, right? And story is strategy, that's famous, but, then, but what exactly is a story? Okay, stories are well known and well studied. I'm gonna oversimplify, but stories have three parts. The beginning, the middle, and the end. The beginning, you introduce the hero, which is not you, it's your user. Your user is always the hero. You introduce the villain, right, which is what is the problem that your hero is trying to overcome. You introduce the wise advisor, which is the Gandalf or Obi-Wan. In this case, that is you. You're the vendor. You're the wise advisor. And you introduce the gift, which is the magic ring or the lightsaber, or in your case, a product that the hero is going to use to overcome the villain. And you introduce the inciting event, Right? Luke doesn't actually head off on his adventures until the Empire attacks him. And then you get to the middle, and the middle is basically a series where there's an obstacle that the hero has to overcome to get to the villain, and he has to use the gift to overcome the obstacle. Repeat, 
over and over and over again. That's why the middles of adventure novels are so big, right? Finally, the end, where the hero meets the villain, overcomes the villain, learns something, and then shares that wisdom with the members of their own community. This is what your case studies should be. Your case studies should be nothing but the wisdom that your users have gained from defeating the hero that they want to share with their peers. So throw away these grocery lists of features that no one cares about. Has anyone ever gone to see a movie about a grocery list? No. Okay. And recast what you're doing in this type of story where you are helping devs or whatever user you have defeat a villain and be transformed. So Alison, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, right? Because at the end of the day, community building is awesome, messaging is awesome, but we're here to make money, right? Yeah. And we need revenue, we need sales for that. Help. How do you tie Jonah's comments, Adam's comments to revenue? Yeah, I actually, I was surprised to find that I'm like very much in agreement with elements of what both of you said. I think especially what, what you just said about like crafting the narrative. You know, if you think about it, evangelism, right, which is a term we use a lot in like building, about, you know, building communities, actually was a religious term to begin with. Kind of interesting to think about like the origin of that term, right? And someone once told me what a leadership coach I work with, you know, he said to me, I found this very provocative but super inspiring, that everyone has the ability to be a prophet in their own way. And it, you know, I don't mean to, that to be offensive to like any religious people in the room. But I think the idea here is that there's an idea that underlies your product. And your goal as a founder is to be an evangelist and get that idea out into the world. So, you know, really, I think one of the most important roles that a founder can take on is to be the chief communicator, to like really, you know, to talk as much as possible. And, you know, for folks who are more introverted, that might mean writing a lot. I've personally found in like, you know, the companies I've been most involved with throughout my career, that content has actually been the primary driver of initially community development and also revenue later. DBT Labs, which, you know, had its origins in open source, Founder Tristan was, you know, super active in writing a lot about his perspective on the world and, you know, how managing your data should be the same as managing software. There are, like, common principles that, you know, should exist across both. And I think what he did in writing all of those posts was communicate his vision of the world, but also communicate who he was as a person. Because as Erica mentioned earlier, people really have to like you, VCs, but also your customers really have to like you, your community has to like you. And ultimately, if they like you, they will you know, be willing to trust you and pay for your product when that's in some ways sort of a, you know, going beyond the altruistic notions of having a community. Can I just say one, one other thing as well? I actually don't think we're disagreeing on anything. I think we're all singing from the same hymn sheet because I think we'd probably all agree that, I mean, marketing is critical to your point earlier on. Like, we've got to get out there. You've got to advocate for your problem. You've got to advocate for your, for, for your future users and customers. You've got to build a passion around that. Um, I think the main thing in my mind is that we can't do it in a vacuum. Like we have to sit down and, ha and build this in with the relationship with our audience. I think there are some people who will build a product and they'll sit there furiously working on it and they don't want to share it with the world until it is ready. And that is the worst possible thing that you can do. And I think part of this is psychologically being vulnerable and saying, look, we're not, we don't expect to have all the answers. We need to build this, but we need to do it in conjunction with folks, which I think is a combination of marketing, it's community building, it's a whole bunch of other things. So that's a great point, and I wanted to touch on that, which is 
when do you actually start selling, right? How much time do you spend on nurturing the community and the marketing and product development? At what point do you actually go through a POC, a design partnership, and commercial revenue? How would you advise the folks in this room that are thinking of the pursuit or have just started? At what point do you say, all right, I will truly now try to go get a deal done? I've seen different approaches to this. I think the best approach is one where you're, you know, working with a number of different design partners and, you know, you're, you're building the product, you're iterating, you're getting lots of feedback, you're proving the value, and then they come to you and say, you become such a core part of our operation, we have to start paying for you in order to ensure that we don't lose you. And I've, I've actually seen a number of ex examples of really high-performing companies that were like this. Monte Carlo, uh, which is a data observability company, is one that comes to mind. Literally, they, they weren't even trying to charge. It was just that customers started coming to them and saying, hey, we need like actually a contract so that I can get this through procurement and like not lose the budget for next year. So, you know, that, that I think is the ideal way to start selling. I think if you want to take the more traditional approach, you know, you can start with a design partnership, you can move to a POC, which is basically like saying, you know, we're having a contract with you, we're going to have certain parameters under which we're going to work together, we're going to prove certain kinds of value, which we're defining in advance as these things, you're going to pay a fixed amount for this temporary period, and then the, the understanding, and ideally you align on this up front, is that, you know, we're going to move to a recurring contract at the end of that POC. So, you know, ideally you're shaping those expectations up front, laying out how your software is, is going to be bought, and then you can you know, turn it into an, an ongoing relationship. How many design partners should a founder young company target? At Alchemist Accelerator, I lead the DevTool startup track, right? And we teach a technique called the Technical Advisory Board. And the Technical Advisory Board is an interesting technique. It's not technical. It doesn't give advice, and it's not a board. That's just what it's called. Okay. Don't let the name get in the way. Exactly. And, and so you recruit people to your tab, people who are potential users and buyers of your software, but you don't show them the software. You talk to them about their problems. And typically, we, we try and construct this as you're going to meet with them for half an hour a month for six months. So it's not a transaction where they think it's a sales call. It's a relationship, but it doesn't go on forever. And so the first call, you ask them about their problems. What, what would they change if they could wave a magic wand, right? And then if they got that, how would that change their life, right? So reframe it so you're thinking about the benefits. And then as you develop relationships with people, right, you then say, well, how important is it that you solve this problem, right? Do you, are you committed to solving it in the next six months, in the next six weeks? And then you talk about, you know, if you achieve this type of solution to this problem, you know, would that make you happy? Or what would you need? So you do a non-sale sale because you're, as a startup, you're nothing. You have no credibility, right? You need to get in through solving people's problems in the softest way possible, saying, we have something that does X. Does that, is that going to address your problem? The great thing about developer problems is that they're never really solved, but they just have to be addressed. And now, especially if you've got a free product, which almost every startup should do, once it's out in use, you will get inundated with requests. And so an important part of, of understanding these requests is figuring out, are these coming with a budget attached or not? Because some of them will come with a budget attached, and that is what makes up the core of your premium product. Hey, John, and what about from a community standpoint? What role does community play in go-to-market and revenue generation? I think it depends on the stage of the company. I found that with 
the really early stage companies like the seed stage, most of the focus is on product market fit. So revenue is not really that big of a deal at that, at that particular point. It's, like, well, it's, a, it's a big deal, but it's less of a priority. Um, but to me, when you start getting into the growth phase, I think this is where community can play a, a pretty significant role in a, num in a number of different areas that typically get conflated. Like one area where the obvious one is growth. If we grow our community, then people are going to talk about what we're doing um, and more people will learn about, uh, about what we're doing. And the problem with that is that the attribution model is broken. Like there's no way to really, everyone talks about how to measure the ROI of DevRel. There is no way to measure the ROI of DevRel because DevRel is not one single thing. It's a variety of different pieces that kind of glue together. Um, but to me, I tend to break it down into, okay, how can we, how can we generate growth? How can we also provide the best possible customer experience and the best possible user experience with open source projects as well? And they're measured in very, very different ways. I think a lot of companies, especially with open source projects, what they tend to do is they focus extensively on the open source project and building growth there, but they miss out on building a, in building a customer community. And I think what's really important here is I'm of the view that when someone, somebody becomes a customer, they buy your product or your service. That should be 50% of the value. The other 50% of the value should be their experience working with you as a company, how they solve their problems, and not just how you fix a ticket for them, but also how you play a role in solving the broader set of problems that they're dealing with on the day-to-day -day basis, which is content and marketing and engagement events, all kinds of stuff. I want to expand. That's something that's generally said. It's very important that you need to shift your mindset away from your product and onto your customer's problem. Okay, this, it's easy to say it's so hard to do, especially for engineers turned CEOs, because you've been thinking about the product for years. It was hard to think of, it was hard to build, it was hard to write. You figured out how to do it in a clever way, and you so want to explain how it works. Your, cost, your prospects don't care, okay? They care about their problem. They want to talk about their problem. They want to hear about other people with the same problem. And the communities, communities form when lots of people have the same problem, not just because they happen to be using the same product. That's great. So the next topic that I hear often as a concern is pricing and, and packaging to some extent. Um, a lot of open source companies, John, to your point, have this issue that they open source too much and then there's very little left to actually monetize. And you build this great, vibrant community, but when you go to monetize, you run into an issue. What have you seen work really well, and what have you seen not work well as it pertains to monetizing and the pricing of open source originated solutions? Okay, I'll take this. Right, this is my, my most read post of all time. It's called, The Magic Should Be Free. Okay, so when people, everyone knows you have three columns when you have that on your pricing page. Right, your left column is your free product, and it's not like it's not like cars where you have a base car and then you throw some fancy stuff on it, and then you've got the touring whatever on the right. Okay, it's by persona. The left column is for the developer or the SRE or the engineer, who someone who writes code who has to get their job done. Everything that they need to get the job done needs to be in the free product. The middle column is the premium product. Okay. Your, for 90% of cases, the persona you're targeting is the manager. And for 90% of managers, their number one problem is collaboration in the age of distributed teams and work from home. So all you need to do is take the magic should be free, and then you add collaboration and charge for it. 
And then the right-hand column is the enterprise problem. And the persona you're targeting there is the CTO or the VP of engineering who gets paid the big bucks to worry about security and reliability and failover and disaster recovery and archiving, all the boring stuff. And you can charge big bucks for the boring stuff. But you have to build it in that order. You can't build the boring stuff first. No one would use it, right? So if you, if here, and if you look at like GitLab pricing, it's exactly this model, right? If you think about the Copilot pricing, right? It's 10 bucks a month and 20, what do you, what does the extra, what does the 20 get you a month? License management, that's it, right? I talked to Alyssa and she said, if it was a startup, they would have made Copilot free and then 50 bucks a month with, with license management, but Microsoft. I can speak to some pricing principles, I think, more generally, and I, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I think often founders, especially technical ones who think very analytically, can often get a little bit caught up in the mechanics underlying the pricing model. What metrics should you use? How should the math add up to this total number? What actually matters for your early customers is the, the dollar amount, and it's the total dollar amount relative to other things they're already paying for. So you basically have to start thinking of yourself as being in an ecosystem of other tech products that this particular customer is used to buying. For example, you know, in the case of DBT Labs, they're in the modern data stack, the one that was sort of spawned by Snowflake and other big data warehouses. What their buyers care about is how much are they spending on DBT Labs versus Snowflake or their, their data warehouse. You know, in the case of Gainsight, the company where I was COO, we were in the go-to-market software ecosystem. People would compare our price to the price of, that they were already paying for Salesforce.com. So the, the ratio is probably the thing that matters the most. I think with your early customers, it's also worth thinking about what are they able to approve as a total amount? So sometimes if, if you're selling into, let's say you're selling top down, you're selling into, you know, a director level person, they might have the autonomy to approve, you know, contracts up to $50,000, but then beyond that, they have to get approval from their boss. So if you want a more frictionless sale just to land in that account, you might just sell for $50,000 to that director to just you know, get the deal over the finish line. And then over time, you can start to expand that contract, get the VP involved, and make it a much bigger deal. Just two quick points, but a question for everybody. First of all, how many people in this room are at a company that does have an open source project as part of the business? Okay, so probably about maybe a third, something like that, maybe half. So two quick things. One is when it comes to pricing, I think the key thing is that uh, almost every founder that I've met, when I've asked them, your expectations are on the pricing and then the reality of the pricing, how close were they? Not close at all. Like it's a journey that people go through, lots and lots of testing around it. And I think to your point, like really getting, getting clarity on what the market is willing to pay and how you define value at that dollar amount is key. The reason why I was asking about the open source uh, piece here is that, all too often, especially with early stage companies where there's like, oh, we built this open source project, we've got a million GitHub stars, and we're going to build an open, a, a commercial enterprise uh, product later on. Think about that right now uh, for two reasons. One is you've got to have clear delineation between, um, to your point uh, earlier on about like, the free thing that you can use, let's say that's an open source project, is you should be able to do real things with it. It should be dangerous with it. You'll be able to solve a real problem with it. But then if you don't have, if you don't have clarity of what your commercial product's going to be, where this gets dangerous is setting expectations with developers in your open source project. The amount of times 
a, a developer goes and implements a feature from your commercial product and submits it as a pull request, and then you awkwardly don't want to merge it because it's, it's, it's going to devalue your commercial product, that's the worst possible experience for a developer. And there's nothing wrong at the beginning of a project saying, you know what, these are, this is where we, we welcome contributions and this is where we don't because we're, we're building a, a company around this. Other people can have a separate fork of it if they want to, but I think it's really important that we, we go out there with clarity for our communities. I want to throw in an interesting fact point just from my own personal experience. Um, I was at Neo4j where 99% of Neo4j users use the open source, I mean, the AGPL and don't pay Neo4j anything. So we, Neo4j is doing 160 million ARR from 1% of its users, okay? The flip side is JFrog, where there's an open source artifactory used by less than 1% of artifactory users. Everyone buys the, the premium version. And let me tell you a little bit why we did that at JFrog. Well, we started open source, right? But the reason why we keep an open source that no one uses is that when we're selling Artifactory and someone would say, look, the product just isn't that complicated. I could build it in two weeks. All right, why do I pay you this money? And the answer was, it's open source. Go knock yourself out. You know, if you find a bug, send us a pull request. And 100% of the time they answer, well, I didn't really want to be in the, you know, repository business. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of differentiating your paid product from the open source product. It's so important. I love the idea of thinking about that very early. By the way, you might find that initially when you've got your paid product, it's pretty easy to sell. Maybe people love you already. They love your product. They see the value of collaboration, the manager usage, the visibility that like, you know, senior people get to what the team is working on. But then, you know, after a year, budgets start to tighten. They're like, do we really need this? You know, and, and then you start to suffer from churn to core. So actually, your greatest competitor can be your own open source product. Companies can cannibalize their own businesses that way. So it's really important that even if you find you're able to sell, you're getting a lot of momentum in your paid product, make sure that you're actually quantifying the value that you are delivering. Build those case studies, you know, create the ROI calculators, sell, you know, to the senior leaders, here's what the team is benefiting from. From. They're so much more productive. We're able to quantify it in this way. Um, and then you can ensure that the renewal ends up happening and you're able to expand that account as well over time. Great. I want to touch one other topic specifically to sales because sales is a unique skill set. It's typically not a skill set that technical founders possess. That's just the reality of it. And we, you hear a lot about founder-led selling, right? Go out and the founders sell. Then you go out and raise a seed or a series A to Jesse's comments about having some level of revenue traction. And let's just assume that you're successful with founder-led selling. I'd love to hear from you all. Where, where do you go from there? When do you hire an AE, a BDR, account executive, sales, uh, uh, business development rep to drive leads? When, when do you have enough to say, okay, now we should go hire an AE? I would try to defer this as long as possible. I think the instinct of a lot of folks who haven't necessarily sold before is, oh, well, this is not an area that I'm strong in, and so I'm going to hire someone to go do this. The reality is most salespeople that you are going to hire, if they you know, have the background of a salesperson, are very specialized and they are not necessarily the generalist entrepreneurial thinkers that you are. 
So you actually probably have a lot more inner strength in this area than you might give yourself credit for. So if you can delay hiring, you know, for example, that VP sales, it means less expense early on. It means that you can optimize your own learning, not just about, you know, the product, like, you know, you're getting feedback on the product itself, but also you're getting feedback on the go-to-market itself, which is ultimately your responsibility to build sort of as a product in itself, right, as a founder. And, you know, the longer that you can wait to hire someone in this area, the better a person you can attract. If you have great traction, you've got great momentum, you prove out the TAM, you know, you can attract someone from an amazing company who's who's really good. I generally like to think that, you know, if, if you can manage an initial salesperson, maybe together figure out, you know, what is that go to market and then hire a second person, a second salesperson who you can make successful. At that point, you know, it's not a fluke, you know, that the first person was the first salesperson was successful. You're not seeing two people be successful. At that point, it might make sense to hire a sales leader who can scale out that playbook that you've built. I have a slightly different answer, and it's, it's bad news for everyone here. The first million dollars in ARR has to be closed by the founders. And don't hire, the, 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 the problem I see over and over again, people think that there's this magical, mythical sales creature out there. I just hire this guy in an expensive suit, or a woman, and they show up with a notebook and the money starts rolling in. This does not happen. Okay, the first million in ARR has got to be founder-led. Don't hire a sales leader on the path to get there. I have seen people be successful hiring a sales coach because it's so much easier to teach a founder how to sell than teach a salesperson what the heck your product does and why people might want it. I completely agree with that. I, you know, but sorry, the point I was, I was trying to make was defer it as long as possible. Do it yourself. A few tactics I found to help product-oriented founders actually sell. One is, you know, think about selling again as writing. You're probably already strong at writing code. Think about writing in English, like conveying these ideas in a way that's easily understandable to other people. If you think of your sales process as a product in itself that you were iterating on, gathering feedback on, you know, that also I think is a way to apply a systems thinking approach to sales, which actually like is a system in itself. It's a process that you're trying to evolve. Try to be opinionated as well about your sales process and the way that you're opinionated about your product too, right? Like you're building your product in a way that is supposed to bring a best practice into the world, a philosophy into the world. You can be opinionated with customers and saying, you know, this is how I hope that you will evaluate our product. This is what I think will be helpful in you, you know, going through this sales process. And then finally, I've chatted a little bit about like helping your current customers sell on your behalf. Introducing those references early on in a sales cycle can actually relieve you of the burden of selling, right? If you can get a really happy customer to talk to a prospective customer and say, look at all the value I'm getting, you'd be crazy not to use this, you know, you're able to, you know, potentially like not have to sell as much yourself. I was just going to say one other quick thing to layer on top of uh, what both of you said is I think bringing in a sales coach, if it's the right coach, is just invaluable. I've actually been through this process myself. And one of the reasons why I totally agree with you've got to like, as a founder, you've got to do this work first is that one, I think you need to be able to understand the process and you learn a lot about what your customers want and what their objections are and how to create a pipeline that's really elegant and thoughtful and tasteful. We all know what terrible sales looks like and no one wants that for their 
company. So I think going through that and building that out yourself is really important. But also I think it's really important because none of these things exist in a vacuum, right? Like it, you need marketing, you need collateral, you need DevRel, you need product. Everyone's going to interface with sales at some point. And if you do this as a founder, you can set the right expectations. My worry is if you bring someone in and they just go off to the races, you'll end up with something that totally doesn't match your company. There's a question in the back. So the question, just for those on the video, is can you talk about the differences when the founder was running sales versus in situations okay. that they weren't? Let me like, first grasp. So the most important thing you're doing at an early stage startup is you're constructing this feedback loop, right? You're putting ideas, products, solutions out into the market, and you're listening for what your users are telling you back, right? And this is, what, this is what a founder does. And a founder has to do this successfully before they can institutionalize this. When I say institutionalize it, I mean have product managers and everyone else that takes a piece of this. So when the founders are leading the sales, success means you're learning something. The company is learning something from every interaction with the developer, which should be happening every day. What happens when you hire professional salespeople too early is they come in and they expect there's some fact with every possible objection spelled out, and here's how you handle it. Because this is what large-scale corporations do to make that sale, you know, to enable their salespeople. Every situation is spelled out, and here's your playbook for you know, situation one, situation two, situation three. You take an experienced, successful salesperson, you put him in an early-stage startup, the first objection just floors him. I'll give a couple examples of, of this having gone wrong. First example is a company that got to 15 million in ARR. Initially, they had tremendous growth through self-serve. This is a technical founder. Naturally, they, had, they said, you know, we can automate things. We can do this through software. I don't want to have to sell. But they had so much traction that at some point, their VCs in particular said, you could hire a sales team, actually, to like sell to enterprise and take advantage of the leads that you're getting in these large organizations, sell bottom-up, and ultimately like secure the corporate-level contract. So they just started hiring a ton of salespeople, hired a VP of sales, got to 15 million in ARR, and at that point started experiencing an enormous amount of churn. And the reason was because the founder was not learning from conversations with customers about how the, the product was resonating, what kind of value it was delivering or not delivering. And on top of this, the founder was not able to learn what was working well in the company's interface with those customers um, in the sales process itself. So there were actually lots of expectations that were set poorly initially that you know, weren't you know, delivered on. And so, as a result, that company ended up declining to about $5 million in ARR over the next couple of years because of this massive churn rate. And, I mean, you would think that this would be an aberration, but actually it's an extremely common scenario for companies that, where the founder is not learning firsthand about how the product is resonating, how their go-to-market playbook is resonating. Any other questions, by the way? We're coming up. Oh, yeah. So, the question is, when do you hand off? Yes. I've seen many examples. Okay. And the answer is that the founder has to, there has to be a repeatable process with, with enough variation that you've seen and you know what the expected variables and the objections are going to be, okay? Once that's in place, and as a founder, you, so as a founder, when you are bored of doing sales because you're so good at it, okay, that's a big clue that maybe it's time to hire some salespeople, right, and see if you can teach them how to do it because that's what makes it scalable. So it absolutely does happen. I've seen it over and over again. But as long as something surprising is coming up in every sales call, you're not ready yet. 
it might be worth actually talking a little bit about like what exactly does it mean to have a playbook that you can hand off to a sales team? I, th I think you covered a lot of this. It's talking points about how exactly to describe the product, what words to use, what sentences to use, what the intro should be, you know, what you should say at different points in the call, the agenda that you're walking through, what next step is um, expected and, and that you propose at the end of the meeting, what are all the different meet this is a top-down method, by the way, like what are all the different meetings that you're having over the course of your sales process, what demos should there be, what pitch, what pitch decks are you using, who are the different people that need to be included in different meetings, if objections come up, how exactly are you responding to those? When do you introduce references? These are like very tactical things, but you, again, you can kind of think of them as being features of a product where the product is your sales process. So, you know, one, once you've got that as a package, I think you're at a good point where you can hand it off to a sales team. I would say though that always there are going to be new things that come up over the course of building your company. Your product is gonna change, the market's gonna change, your competition is gonna change. And so really as a founder, you're never gonna just hand it off, right? Like you're always gonna have to be involved, really in every function at your company to some degree. And you know, the point where you know you're not, then you know, maybe it's worth thinking about like restructuring your team in some way. You know, I, I think I see some founders when they get to be, you know, of a pretty significant scale, call it like fifty to hundred million ARR, they think about hiring a president who can run a lot of the company with the founder being for, more, more focused on R&D and brand and evangelism. But until you get to that point, you've really got to be involved everywhere. It's not true that developers hate marketing. Absolutely not true. Developers love good marketing. The problem comes because so many companies hire successful marketers in the, from the B2B world who come in and they try and duplicate the exact strategies that they've been successful with in the past and they don't work with developers, and they're the ones that throw up their hands and say developers hate marketing. Developers are not executives, right? Developers are not leads. You have to understand developers and why they adopt technology, and why this is a mystery is a mystery to me, because everyone in this room is a developer. There's never been a dev tool company with a CEO who wasn't a former developer, and yet when they become a CEO, all of the, their existing culture is like it disappears inside their mind. I've actually, I have like hours of stuff that could answer this question. Find me on LinkedIn and uh, I'd be happy to talk with it more. Or any of you, follow me on LinkedIn. I've got a book that answers sure. this question that I'm publishing at a bit of time. Writing. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I would frame it slightly different. I think developers hate shitty marketing. And I think one of the reasons how they define it as shitty is I think developers expect the time to practical outcome is very, very short. So I think with other demographics that you may be targeting, people are willing to jump through a lot more hoops to get to an outcome. But I think with developers, so long as you focus on what their pain points are, solving their problems and getting to quick wins in a really practical way, then I think you can actually do really well. As one tiny example, one of the things I've found consistently with a bunch of members that I've worked with is actually having an email list for developers, as long as it's unbranded, it's high quality technical content in small chunks that solves a very specific issue, you can get well over double the open and click rate, which is proof that developers are open to email and marketing, but it's got to be framed towards their problem. So can you give us an example of shitty marketing to developers? On stage? <laughs> We're here. I mean, I honestly, I think... What, 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 what should the folks avoid? 
What, what makes for good marketing? What makes for bad marketing? I mean, I can throw out some examples. I mean, I'm not going to say specific companies because that would be just a little bit mean. But, um, for example, just unsolicited, terrible LinkedIn invitations, garbage blogging content that kind of goes out there that generically is just trying to capture keywords uh, and, and rank on Google. I'd say 45-minute uh, webinars with no interactivity where they're teaching something and there's no response. One other thing I would say is just really uninspired events with just a bunch of relatively uninteresting content that's with people just waffling on stage. Again, no interactivity. This is a good example of what it should be like. There's a conversation going on. There's discussion. There's engagement. There's a variety of different perspectives. Okay. Let, let me give an example because this is something that like half the companies here do and it drives me nuts. You push as your main benefit, oh, we increase developer productivity. No one wakes up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to increase my productivity by buying something from a vendor. It has never happened in the history of the world. And if that's all you can think of, developer productivity, that's undifferentiated. That means that the developer is thinking, well, there's this piece of software, or I could maybe I'll get a third screen, or maybe I'll get a bigger mug for my coffee so I can walk less to the coffee machine. It's like, this is what you're competing with now. So if you want to market effectively, differentiate your benefits into something specific that developers wake up in the morning and say, today I need to solve this problem. All right. So we are unfortunately past our time, but... Thank you all so much. Appreciate the candor, the transparency, the actionable insight. Can't thank you all for joining here on the panel.